All right, good morning. We're going to start out with uh, reading Psalm 29. Honor the Lord, you heavenly beings. Honor the Lord for his glory and strength. Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The the God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. He makes Mount Hermon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes the barren wilderness quake. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips forests bare in his temple. Everyone shouts, glory. The Lord rules over the floodwaters. The Lord reigns as king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses them with peace. Good morning. Welcome to Regen. Um, If it's your first time here, we're so glad to have you. Um, You've been welcomed. You are expected. Um, And if if you're new or if you are someone who comes all the time but hasn't filled out one of our hay cards to get our emails, we'd recommend that you do that um, just so that you can keep in touch with what's going on and our different events that are happening and all those good things. Um, speaking of announcements for this week, tonight the youth circle, I'm reading this email or this text so I get it right. Um, tonight is youth circle bowling. So they're going to be meeting at Echo Lanes in Warren at 6 p.m. and they'll be done by 7.30. Um, bowling costs will be covered, but feel free to bring money for food and other things. So and if you need a ride, let us know and we'll let Aaron know who's not here this morning. But... Um, yeah, so we'll tell someone else to take care of that. No, we're just kidding. But um, so that's for students in 6th grade through 12th grade. So um, that's our youth circle. Today, after the service, we're doing a Discover event called People of Peace. So we're going to be learning about how to identify people who um, God is at work in their lives and just kind of how we can come alongside what God's already doing. So we'll um, share a meal together and just have that uh, time of discussion and teaching. So that will be um, great. And then this Saturday at 10 a.m., At our house, we're going to be doing um, a parenting uh, book club discussion on families where grace is in place. So um, you're welcome if you're a single parent or um, both parents, welcome to come to our place, um, our address. Um, Let me know and I can get it to you. We're just around the corner here in Champion, and that'll be this Saturday. And then um, also uh, our check-ins for this month. If you have a social media account, I want to do check-ins, hashtag RegenGives. And this month it's going to go to UMCOR, which stands for United Methodist Committee on Relief. Um, And they are responding to both the hurricanes uh, flooding in North Carolina and South Carolina and also the tsunami uh, stuff going on over in Asia and Indonesia. So... Um, if you want to use the hashtag RegenGives, it'll generate a donation to them as well. So I think that's all for our announcement. So I'm going to have Zach come up and pray for our offering. Good morning, guys. I'm Zach. Um, uh, if you guys are given today, uh, I'll be passing around these buckets. Um, and there's a little note inside of your uh, program that, can kind of, that tells you some ways on how to do that. Uh, before I pass these around, will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for being here with us today. Um, 
Thank you for doing the work inside of each and every one of us and inviting us into your church uh, so that we can be a part of this family together and uh, do the work and the wills that you have put in front of us. God, we recognize your, your holiness, your otherness, and we aspire to put that on ourselves. So today, as we listen to your message, um, just help us really listen, God, and that requires not just hearing, but like an action as, as a result of hearing the words that you say. So I pray that over this church and my family here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Father, we present these things to you. And uh, Lord, we invite you to teach us this morning what it is to rest in your promises. Um, we invite you to teach us what it means to let your faithfulness be our confidence. And so, God, uh, remove out from underneath us the stuff that we stand on that is really not steady and help us uh, to be at rest today in you. Jesus, you said that you wanted to teach us to rest, to learn the unforced rhythms of grace from you, and so help us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Uh, kids can go back with Miss Kathy. There she is. Um, hey, welcome to Regen. Uh, my name's Kyle. I get to be the pastor here. And a uh, couple things. Uh, if, if you're overdressed this morning, this is perhaps the only church and the only Sunday in church history where if you came wearing church clothes, like or even casual church clothes, you're overdressed. So today is Sweatpants Sunday, and uh, we have a pretty cool relationship with one of the schools in the Warren City school system. And um, sometimes they have students that need some sweatpants part of the way through the day. Um, maybe have a little bit of an accident as things go on, and so they get sweatpants. So we, we've been doing this for about three or four years now, Sweatpants Sunday, the comfiest Sunday of the year. So that's pretty cool. Um, hey, if you came out to our family meeting on Thursday night, I just want to say thanks again for that. Um, it was, there were about 40 people in the room and about another five or six that couldn't be here, but let me know that. And I mean, that's actually for a church of our size to have like people that are bought in at that level was really, really exciting. So thanks for doing that. I don't think it will be our last family meeting ever either. Not that we'll like do one every week. I mean, I like you, but anyway. Um, so also please stay after Discover. This people of peace thing um, that we'll be unpacking at our Discover event, um, Steph and I and Zach and Joey and Julia and Aaron and a few others, we've been discipled to kind of see how Jesus uh, kind of begins to work in people's lives before we ever show up. A lot of us, if we were raised in church, have heard really disappointing, shaming sermons on, uh, you know, evangelism or sharing your faith and the people of peace strategy, which is Jesus' strategy to reach people. It's just super life-giving and refreshing and actually pretty easy. So uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18 this morning while we talk about a spirituality of poverty. Um, true confessions. Next week, I was thinking about preaching on a spirituality of racism. I do not feel equipped to have that conversation with you. Um, I, I like to study a lot, and I like to live it before I live it, and we were going to have an expert come in and talk about that who couldn't make it, so we're going to put that in a Tupperware container for some time later when Chip could come, and um, I'll preach on something Love the 330 related, um, so stay tuned. <laughs> Our, all of my worship teams are in the room are like, well, that sounds nice. That's great. Okay. Um, we like to kind of build a whole story. So 
We'll see what happens here. But we're going to talk about Luke's gospel this morning, spirituality of poverty. The gospel of Luke is really interesting. The gospel of Luke does this constant reversing of things. It's always turning things upside down, kind of like how we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount series, this upside down thing. We're going to kind of be in Luke 18, and then I'm going to be everywhere else. So if you want to hold on to Luke 18, that's fine. When, when Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, discovers that she's pregnant, she sings a song. It's called the Magnificat. And when she does, she, sing, she says this, Yahweh, God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Do you see that reversal? He has brought down the mighty, those on their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty, right? The rich he has sent away empty, that he has filled the hungry with good things. Later on, we see how this works in Luke chapter 18, when Jesus meets what we would call a rich young ruler, a young man of the ruling class uh, who comes to Jesus in Luke chapter uh, 18, and they have just a really interesting conversation. Let me find it. There we go. one day, a religious leader, so, so other, other places in the Gospels, he's called a rich young ruler. Here in Luke, he's called a religious leader. He, he obviously is of the nobility class uh, in, in the area where Jesus is doing ministry. You can't really be in the nobility class without having some spiritual credential. So it says, a religious teacher asked Jesus this question one day, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him, only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. These are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words of Moses. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Can I tell you, if I'm Jesus, there's just like the tiniest bit of eye roll, right? Like, yes, you have. Okay, great. Um, That's just me. I'm cynical. Man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And then verse 23 of Luke chapter 18 says, When the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw this, he said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, check this out, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Or to put it more simply, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Now in Matthew, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke chapter 6, it just says, blessed are the poor, blessed are those in poverty, for they, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The The poverty level for a family of four in Ohio is a yearly income of $25,100. That is the poverty level. It notches up or down depending on the number of kids in a home. And in Trumbull County, 17.5% of people are beneath the poverty level, which is a little bit higher than the state average. The state average is 14% of our population in the state of Ohio are below the poverty line. In Trumbull County, it's about 3.5% higher. Nearly one-third of people living within Warren City and the city limits live in areas that could be considered to be a food desert or experience food insecurity. Now, food insecurity 
Uh, food insecurity is this thing where a person relaxes, they, they lack reliable access to food, namely fresh food, right? So they may have access to a Dollar General, which I don't know if you've noticed, like I go to sleep and there's like three more of them somewhere. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, I don't understand. So they may be near a Dollar General, but Dollar General does not have fresh fruits and vegetables. So you're, you have food insecurity if you, lack, uh, if you lack reliable ongoing access to food. Now that may be reflective of their income too. Um, and, and a great portion of the population of Warren City live the, in this food desert. And a food desert is an area in which more than 50% of the residents are poor and there are no grocery stores in that radius and there is limited transportation. Our Grace campus is smack dab in the middle of one of the largest food deserts in Warren City. Uh, because if you, if you go out, if you ever drive out there sometime, you, you go down Levitt Road here and that gets you to Parkman Road, you turn left, you're going to pass an Aldi, I think there's a Family Dollar, there's a Kmart, no not a Kmart, a, uh, there used to be a Kmart, there's a Sparkle, and then there's um, a Giant Eagle over on Mahoning Avenue down in Warren. Those are the only places that a person living on the northwest side could get fresh food. And there, for a lot of the people living there, if they don't have transportation, i.e. a vehicle, um, they can't get there on their own. It's outside of walking distance, a food desert, which is why Grace Campus has this food pantry that I kid you not serves like 110, 125 families a month. I mean, it's crazy the amount of families that were, I mean, it's, it's a significant number of people. Um, 110, 125 is like holidays. What's that? And a lot of them are elderly, right? Uh, and a lot of them like drive together. It's, it's fascinating. Um, what we want to do is if we're going to love the 330, we have to love it. Kyle has kind of teacher hat on this morning more than he has preacher hat. Um, we have to love the 330 as it is, not as it was, or as we would like it to be, okay? So the challenge, Stephen Garber says in his book, Visions of Vocation, is to see the world as it is, not as we would like it. Listen, it is very easy to be married if you want to love your spouse as you would like them to be, right? It's very easy to be a parent if you're going to love your kids like you want them to be. It is another thing entirely, love your spouse, love your kids, love anything, love your community, serve it, if you see it as it is, right? Seeing clearly, but that's, that's what we're doing. So if we're going to see the 330, see our area, love it, serve it, be a church for such a time as this, then we need to like live in the reality of what's actually happening. So last week we talked about kind of the complexities that underlie addiction and, and tore down some of our cultural assumptions. We're going to do the same with poverty and we're going to kind of do that sociologically and then biblically and uh, hopefully we're out of here before it's too crazy late. But there, there, when, when we think about addiction, we often think of addiction as a choice. We talked about this last week. We think about it as, well, a person should just be able to kick it or get rid of it, but they can't. There's, there's a compulsion, compulsive behavior that overtakes them that, that is why we label addiction a disease. And similarly, we tend to think of... Uh, we, we, we tend to think of poverty in the same way that we think of addiction, that if a person just works really hard, they can get out of poverty. And that's true in some cases, it's just not true in all. It's true in the cases kind of of what we might call situational poverty. Situational poverty is something, is a person who is living above the poverty line, who has something happen to them that puts them below the poverty line for a time. So think about it this way, here's a person, here's a family, they're living above the poverty line, then dad loses his job and mom only works part-time somewhere, and so now they, they fall beneath the poverty line, right? That's situational poverty. Um, maybe a, a loved one dies, 
Uh, maybe there's a significant like medical thing that happens in a family that prevents one or one of the parties from working. And so this situational poverty divorce, this is often common, um, especially in a marriage where the woman, where the wife was not the primary breadwinner. Um, after divorce, she can fall into poverty, which is a problem because custody is often awarded to mothers. Um, and so that's situational poverty. And in situational poverty, there are resources, for example, like unemployment, um, Social Security, those benefits are intended to kind of help a person get through that gap period until they find work again. But there's this whole other kind of poverty, and, the, and, and we're dealing with this kind of poverty very often in our area in the Mahoning Valley now, which is, which is generational poverty. And generational poverty is what happens when situational poverty happened two generations ago. So two generations ago, grandpa, great-grandpa, lost his job at the mill, lost his job at GM, got hurt, something happened, and we fell into poverty. And two generations later, we've never gotten out of it, right? Um, gener generational poverty, this, do you remember that Ben Carson, the guy that runs HUD, um, got in trouble for this like a year ago for saying that poverty is a mindset, like everybody freaked out. He, the problem with that is he's not wrong. Like generational poverty carries with it a culture. Uh, and a culture is, um, it, culture is what we do when we're not thinking about what we're doing or what we're saying. That's what culture is. And there is a culture to generational poverty. And, and a couple of things that, that indicate that. The first thing is that when you're in generational poverty, um, and there's some people in our community that like have really done this a lot, like um, Kathy Britt uh, has, works a lot with moms that are um, trying to get out of poverty or in poverty, or, and there's a lot of, and we have some social workers and stuff like that that experience this too. So again, this is one of those moments where I get nervous about speaking about something I don't know, but here we go. Um, the focus is, uh, after, after last week I talked about addiction, I went to Josh and Kate, and I was like, so how did I actually do? They were like, there was nothing like that we needed to be like, objection, you know, like, so let's see if we can get there again. Um, uh, so in, in generational poverty, there's this focus on surviving on today, and that's it. So we're going to wake up and see if we can get to the end of the day. And when you're in generational poverty, every little thing, like the stuff that people in middle and upper class living do without thinking about it is like an Everest. Getting the kids to school, getting food on the table, getting gas on the car, getting to work, um, those are Everests for people living in generational poverty um, because everything is so fragile, right? Because if my kids don't go to school tomorrow because they're sick and I have to stay home, then I don't get my paycheck because I'm an hourly worker and that means I get further behind. Right? Or if I don't have money to get gas in the car, I'm not going to get to work, I'm going to get fired. Um, if I don't get to work, I mean, I mean, everything kind of so hangs together. People living in generational poverty, almost like their whole life is a house of cards. And you yank like one thing out of it and it could all come tumbling down. And it's simple, things like as simple as like their car breaking down or their kids getting sick or a loved one falling ill that can just send it spiraling and keep people trapped in poverty for for generations. Um, because there's a focus on today, normal practices of middle and upper class families are just not even a category. So most people living in generational poverty do not have bank accounts, right? They don't. And so when they get a paycheck, they go to like a gas station or they go to a place that cashes checks and those places take off a huge chunk off the top. But the reason they do that is because if they ever overdraft, it just can, I mean, overdraft fees can spiral out of control and leave people in generational poverty even worse off than before. So they'd rather kind of have cash on hand and deal that way than like entrust themselves to a bank, right? And so um, 
and, and, and for that matter, middle and upper class families, as a matter of course, plan for the financial future, right? So we have savings accounts, right? We Dave Ramsey our way to like, let's have $1,000 in savings in case something happens, da, 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 da. People in generational poverty, they have no thought about, um, there, there's no mental category for how to be even wise with money, like how to shop sales, um, those kinds of things, because um, there's just a, a lack, there's a lack of, of understanding, there's a lack in their culture, right, because they've been watching their parents and their grandparents do this for years. Um, uh, people in generational poverty live with overwhelming emotional, dis like they have, they have a very low, low ability to emotionally regulate, and here's why. When you are in a crisis, it is hard to emotionally regulate. Um, we were talking last night with my, this is my mom and dad-in-law, by the way, Stephen Margaret here, and um, we were talking about right before we moved here in 2013, Steph's brother and his three boys were in a massive, basically should have ended their life car accident that put all four of them in the hospital for an extended period of time. And at one point in there, two of the boys were at a hospital downtown an hour away. The other two were in a hospital 45 minutes away from all of us. And it took the four of us um, Andrea, our sister-in-law, her two sisters, and her mom, and some people from the church. It took all of us all we could do to kind of be everywhere we needed to be at once. I mean, and when you're in a crisis like that, you just like are angry, you're numb, you're tired, you're crying, you're doing all of these things, but we get to kind of leave that, right? Like it was really bad for about 10 days, and then everything settled down. If you're in generational poverty, every moment is a crisis, every moment. And so emotional regulation, and that really shows up at work, Right, so um, people in generational poverty um, like lose jobs really quickly because they fly off the handle at their bosses. Um, and it's just kind of the nature of, again, the culture there. Uh, last thing, um, the, the, the underlying factor in all of this is that in generational poverty, there is an overwhelming hopelessness. So our parents raise us to kind of think that tomorrow's gonna be a better day. Our parents raise us to kind of plan ahead and think like, I mean, we're, we're pregnant, like I want my son to have a better life than I've had, you know, there's this kind of thing. People in generational poverty, there is no hope because there is no thinking beyond today, right, which is, which is hard. And so what we're saying is poverty, like addiction, is a lot more complicated and complex than just, man, if people would just go get a job, anybody, you know, I was raised in a home where people would say, well, anybody can go get a job flipping burgers at McDonald's or da 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 but it's a far more complex thing. I mean, that requires transportation, that requires a vast network of things, and the complexity of poverty is not just a sociological truth, it's a biblical one. So Dan, throw me that chart, that first chart I've got. In the Bible, there are three causes of poverty, not one, not two, not three, and most Christians, I think, assume the first, uh, that, that poverty is a matter of laziness and sloth. So 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if you want to look up some of these passages, you could just snap a picture with your phone. We could even throw it on social media too. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul's writing to a church. They really believe that Jesus is coming back. They believe Jesus is coming back so quickly that some of them have quit their jobs, right? Which sounded like, doesn't that sound like a super spiritual thing to do? Like, guys, Jesus is coming back. I'm going to quit my job so I'm ready, Right? I'm going to quit my job so I can tell everybody I know, which sounded cool until like weeks and then months have gone by, and now you're out of savings, and Zach and Jenna are like over at my house every night for dinner because they quit their jobs being too spiritual. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and, and so Paul, Paul goes so far in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. I think this, this, is, this, is like, this is a verse that can be very much taken out of context and abused, but he basically says, if you don't work, you don't eat. 
right? You don't work, you don't eat. Um, one of my favorite verses, Dan, I'm sorry, I didn't construct this well, so you're going to kind of jump back and forth, but Proverbs 24 um, is one of my favorites. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a robber, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it makes it sound like I'm going to go home today, I'm going to have a nap, and I'm going to wake up, and all of my things are going to be gone, right? Um, I had a Greek teacher uh, he, he do Greek and Hebrew, and he would do a spiritual vitamin. Dr. Sauer would do a spiritual vitamin. And this was one of his favorite verses that somehow always had the so what of class. This is why you got to study your Greek every day, right? I don't think that's what it's about. Um, but isn't that interesting? So this, it's talking about this sloth, right? This laziness. But that's only one of the things. So let's go back to that chart, Dan, because the second kind is calamity and disaster, right? So something crazy or unusual happens that causes a person to be in poverty. So if you remember back to the book of Ruth, we taught through that last year. Ruth uh, is a Moabite woman. Her husband dies, but she's got two sons, so she's fine. But then her two sons die, and now she's a widow, and her daughters are widow and a, widowed in a culture that, like, they're in trouble, right? And if it weren't for the kindness of a man of valor named Boaz, they would have starved and died. Um, another one, um, Luke chapter 8 Jesus meets a woman and it says there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. The discharge of blood was coming from, yes, where you imagine it was coming from. And it says, and though she spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anybody. So here's a woman dealing with like calamity and disaster um, who has thus fallen into situational poverty uh, because of this bad thing happening to her. But then the last category, the last category is injustice and oppression. And uh, <clears throat> so James 1, when it talks about like the religion and pure that is pure in God's sight is caring for widows and orphans, widows and orphans were needed cared for in the first century because the system of their society oppressed them into poverty. Um, the, an example of uh, injustice and oppression in our society is that a single mom who's on government assistance who gets a job, what will happen is she'll make enough money to lose her government assistance and her rent help, but not be making enough money to support herself. So then she becomes homeless again. That is a really great example of systemic injustice and oppression um, because it, it, stops, uh, it stops her from thriving, right? It, st it stops that from happening. Um, Leviticus 19 talks about building into the law of Moses and the law of Israel that they can't like favor rich people over poor people. And then you see like Ezekiel, Amos, and Micah. Ezekiel, Amos, they, all those minor prophets, those parts of the middle of your Bible that you like to avoid, I mean, a lot of those talk most about um, systematic injustice and oppression. And I think Ezekiel is a super interesting case. So the book of Genesis, two cities get blown off the face of the earth, Sodom and Gomorrah. Does anybody remember why? <clears throat> I'm asking. Nobody, everybody's afraid to say it out loud because it's politically hot. It's a hot button, right? Um, Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis are wiped off the face of the earth because men are lying with men and women are lying with women. But then you get to the book of Ezekiel and it says, it's not saying that that wasn't the problem or that it's not a problem, but it's also saying, look at this, Sodom's sin were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside her door. She was proud and committed to testable sin, so there's where it's kind of picking up the Genesis stuff. So I wiped her out as you have seen. Isn't it nice to come to church every once in a while and get a pick-me-up? <laughs> Injustice and oppression were such a big deal 
uh, that, that God wipes out cities because of it. I mean, in like the book of Amos, he's calling like the rich people of Jerusalem, like really funny names, like cows of Bashan. And in Micah, it's talking about some other stuff. So there's these three kind of causes, right? And um, the solutions for each differ. Um, so like when it's laziness and sloth is the source of someone's, is the source of someone's poverty, Scripture would say we rebuke them and exhort them. Rebuke and exhort meaning like smacking them across the face and being like, yo, right? We rebuke and exhort to self-control, no more laziness, and biblical stewardship, right? Like a biblical prioritizing of how you use your money. In calamity and disaster, we offer comfort and we meet immediate needs. Oh, you're hungry right now? Let me cook for you. Let's not talk about if somebody is starving, it is not the time to wax poetic about the injustice of like the entitlement system or the injustice of 21st century American society. They kind of just want a sandwich. You know what I'm saying? But over the long term, when there's injustice and oppression in our society, when there are gaps in our society that, that I would never say that, I don't want to be as strong to say that there are things in our society that force people to stay poor. I will say that the... If, our systems are perfectly designed to get the results that we're getting. So if we have like a significant population that is in poverty, we're, our systems are designed to keep it that way. So that means we need to pursue long-term systemic solutions. I think what's interesting is churches often try to solve injustice and oppression with the tools of calamity and disaster, right? So we can't food pantry our way to a poverty-less society, right? Um, now, here's, here's another interesting thing. Um, notice that the political right, the political right attributes most, if not all, of poverty to laziness and sloth, like a character flaw within people. The political left attributes most, if not all, poverty to injustice and oppression. And the Bible actually says yes and no to all of it. Right, it says it's a lot more complex than that. Tim Keller, my guy, my spirit animal, pastor in New York City, wrote an, an op-ed for the New York Times last weekend. Um, it came out last Sunday. Um, and it's, it's not Tim Keller's best because Tim Keller and I are the same in that we need more than 500 words to get our thoughts out. But Keller's point was that uh, Christians, followers of Jesus, can be, cannot be at home in either party, either political party as we have them now. I think this is a good example of how the politics of Jesus kind of transcend kind of aisles and party lines. Um, it's just interesting to me. So let me, let me do one more way of thinking about poverty. So that's one way to think about poverty and the complexity of it. Here's another way. We can kind of look at the whole story of Scripture in four big broad strokes of creation, fall, redemption, and reconciliation. Bible nerds among us like to pick themes and just see how they work through in scripture. For example, God created us and we were naked and unashamed. Okay? Then in the fall, when Adam and Eve eat of that tree, they saw their nakedness and they hide. Okay? Nakedness is bad. In redemption, Christ comes. He doesn't walk around naked all the time. But he, he comes and... I, I, am, I will give you 100 bucks right now. Jesus was crucified naked because he is taking the curse of our nakedness and canceling it on the cross. 
such that in the new heavens and the new earth reconciliation, I think we will be naked again. Like we will walk in the new heavens and the new earth as we did once. We will walk, we will walk, be naked and unashamed. So see, you can trace this. You can trace this. So one of the things I want to do is to trace poverty. So God creates a society in which all things work together. So our relationships with each other are implicitly trusting. Our relationship with work is fulfilling and good. And and the theological word for this, the Hebrew word for this is shalom. Um, Dan, let me see that next one. Uh, It's a big, long quote. Yes. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs, check this out, in which natural needs are satisfied. What are natural needs? Like shelter, hunger, thirst, relationship. Natural needs are met, and natural gifts fruitfully employed. They worked in the garden. Fast forward, we will work in the new heavens and the new earth. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder, as it's, I should say, creator and savior, opens doors and welcomes in the creatures and whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So when God creates the world, it's a state of shalom. It's a state of all these things working together, our relationship with work, our relationship with each other. But in the fall, when Adam and Eve eat of that tree, when Adam and Eve eat of that tree, it fractures shalom. It fractures shalom. And so Genesis chapter 3 says a couple things. First of all, and Genesis 3 is where it kind of outlines the effects of of the fall. Genesis 3 says um, to Adam and Eve, he says, your he, uh, what does he say here? Your desire, he says to Eve, your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And it points out this tension that will now exist between Adam and Eve and, and as kind of extrapolate that between all human beings as we're constantly trying to, like, aren't we always kind of trying to get on top of each other and control one another and be the king, right? It's a fracturing of relationship between ourselves, but there's also Genesis 3.17 says a fracturing of, of our relationship with creation. It says, the ground is cursed because of you, and all, the li- all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. In other words, there was a time when our gifts were naturally employed in a rewarding way, but after, because of the fracture of shalom, the fracture of the way things ought to be, work is hard, right? This is why no matter how much you love your job, it is tedious, this is why no matter how much we love our children, it is tedious to raise children at times, right? Um, this is no matter why you'll go to college and you'll love what you're studying, but it'll still be tedious. It, it, it's just fractured. So in, re- in redemption, here comes Jesus, who first of all, take note that he lives as a poor, homeless rabbi, right? So Jesus, Luke 9.58 says, I don't, have a, I don't have a, you know, foxes have a hole, birds have a nest, I have neither of these things. I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus is this homeless rabbi, but from his very birth promises the restoration of shalom. Throw me that Isaiah 9, Dan. So here's a Christmas passage, right? For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Shalom. His government, his rule and reign, and its shalom will never end. Jesus is coming to us to restore the shalom of how things were meant to be. But he does it as a poor rabbi. Of 2 Corinthians 8 9, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus, who, though he was poor, 
became, who though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Jesus takes on our poverty in the same way that he takes on nakedness and all sin and all fracture of shalom. To say a person, let me be clear about something. Someone in poverty is not a sinner. But what they are living under is the weight of the curse of sin. They're living under the weight of a curse of a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Do you see what I mean? So Jesus takes that on as the first kind of step toward reconciliation, toward a new humanity and a new human society in which need is taken care of. Why? Because in the new heavens and the new earth, when we see Jesus face to face, there will not be calamity that leads to situational poverty, nor will there be injustice and oppression that leads to generational poverty. So let's go back to Jesus for a minute. Jesus sees this this rich young ruler, this person, says, sell everything that you have and come follow me. And the text said, his face was very sad. I love that. His face was very sad and because he was very rich. And I think Matthew's version of this says that Jesus, as the guy's walking away, it says Jesus had compassion for him, which is interesting. Compassion, splagdichomai, it means that Jesus' bowels and guts were just wrenched for this kid. And so he says, it's easier for a rich man, it's easier for an eye, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the people hearing him say in Luke 18, then how can anyone be saved? Which is an awesome question, right? And this is where Jesus says, with man it is impossible, with God anything is possible. So I think a few things. First of all, Jesus' command to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor is not a universal commitment for universal call for every disciple of Jesus. There is something that Jesus knew about this particular, this particular individual. There's something Jesus knew about this particular individual that knew that there, because of his wealth and because of his possessions, there was not enough room in this kid's heart for the gospel and for the kingdom. He knew that there was no way that, that while he had all of his possessions, he could really fully give himself over to the kingdom. So Jesus says, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Um, he, 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 he's making a, a statement specific to this kid because in the words of Winnie the Pooh, we talked about this, the theologian Winnie the Pooh, sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in our hearts, right? Um, he, he's saying, I, there's, there's no room left for me in this kid's life. And so the kid walks away. The universal command or the universal truth in Luke 18 is that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And as middle and some, in some cases upper class citizens of Trumbull County, what that is a warning to is that um, our stuff very easy and longing for stuff scripture does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Um, it, 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 it crowds out Jesus. This is why like the gospel has always like taken off like wildfire in Africa and in the two thirds world uh, because uh, they, they, are, they, they are very much, in, because of their poverty, they are in touch with their needs of all kinds, material and spiritual. Our physical stuff, our material wealth, our air conditioning and our heated homes, our roofs that don't leak, they, they numb, our, they numb our, need, our sense of need for God. 
And so the warning, the warning that Jesus gives is that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man into the kingdom of God. The statement that he makes that young man go sell on all, everything that you have is, a blank, is not a blanket statement, but Matthew 5.42 in the Sermon on the Mount is. This one that Dan had up. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus says in Matthew 5.42. I checked. There's no like appendix in the Bible that tells you like the rules for this. Right? Jesus just says, give to the one who begs from you. Give to the one who wants to borrow. This was a problematic verse at, in a Bible college in the middle of downtown Chicago where we're all trying to be like obedient and spiritually intense and live out God's word, but you can't walk more than five feet on any city block without somebody asking you for money. Because if we follow this blanket, blanket statement, uh, every one of the Moody students would have been, you know, they wouldn't have been poor, they would have been po. They wouldn't have been able to afford the O and the R, Right? And um, that's something my friend Jared, who lives in Youngstown, says, which I think is just so funny. Um, and I don't know why it's funnier that he lives in Youngstown, but somehow it is, you know? It's like he knows. I don't know. And uh, at the same time, Jesus doesn't say, give to the one who begs with, from you within reason. And I think that's because, what, remember later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus paints this picture of God's provision for us. And I think what he's trying to get at is if we treat our money like it's not ours, we will give freely when asked. And when we treat our money like it's not ours, we don't have to worry, we don't have to worry about providing for ourselves. We just know it's going to be there, which is why in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. He does not say, you will be enriched in every way so you can have a private jet. He says, I, I, will, I will enrich you in every way so you can be generous. I, I almost call this, Rick, my mentor, calls this the blessing zone. That you get into this, this zone, this tight little spot, whereas you're a blessing to others, you're being blessed so that you can, you know what I mean? Like it's this cycle, right? But I think, there's, I, I think we have to decide. The first decision we have to make is whether or not Jesus is being optimistic or realistic. And if he's being realistic, we have to decide how we're going to put into practice the words of Jesus. And here's my suggestion for you. My friend Matt, when we were at Moody, was very bothered by this verse. He had, he had, Matt had such like a soft heart toward the word of the Lord. And if Jesus said it, he was going to do it. Yeah, I mean, gosh, isn't that easy, right? Like there's, it's hard in a different way, but imagine. And so Matt started setting aside a portion of his income every month. And what he would do is he would buy um, tickets for the bus, CTA passes, and he would buy, I think I've told you this before, and then would buy McDonald's gift cards. And then when he was asked for cash, he never carried cash on him. Because that way, if he was asked for cash, he couldn't give them cash, right? And it was Chicago, it, it was Chicago not Trumbull County, where you, we never needed cash. You need cash everywhere here, so that becomes the whole thing. But he, when somebody said, hey, can I have some money for the bus? He would say, I don't have money, but I do have this bus pass. Um, and that also set him free from this idea of like, if I give them cash, are they really getting on the bus? Are they buying alcohol? Notice that Jesus doesn't care, right? Because it's not between you and them if they go buy alcohol with the money you gave them. It's between them and Jesus, and it's between you and Jesus because it's, your, it's his money in the first place, see? So we're going to have a response time in a minute. What does it look like to do this? Jesus is so interesting because he does not caveat his teaching the ways we do. 
We're, the longer you're in church, the, the, the better you are at finding loopholes, right? The, 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 the better you are at, I'm going to honor the spirit of the law, but not the letter. Sometimes you just need to do the letter of the law. Uh, and in this case, Jesus is saying, give, and, that, and then there's this verse. This, that, that kind of, by the way, that verse, give to the one, that, that speaks to the affliction. That speaks to like the random acts of something. This speaks to that systemic piece. I don't know how to do it. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Listen, if you're new to Jesus, like write that on a piece of paper. That's what he's asking of you today. It's also on that wall. Um, fun fact. Um, but seriously, that's it. I mean, and, and, and I think this loving justice means how are we participating in, in, the, in making a more just society? How are we participating in bringing, our vision is to bring a culture of heaven to ordinary places. How are we doing that on earth as it is in heaven? Um, Harry and Kathy have this great tool called Open Table um, that we think really on paper looks like it can really help a person break the cycles of poverty. It has not been easy to make that work, but um, we, we really actually, I see a world where this thing called open table, where it's like a, a young family or a family in poverty is surrounded by 12 people, uh, and, and that, that person in poverty becomes the, board, the chair of the board of directors, and these other 12 people are just there to offer resources and connections for a year to help them get out of poverty. I see a massive overlap between circles and open table. If you know it, you know what I'm saying. Like, like it feels like these two pieces of software were meant to run simultaneously. Um, but my goal today is to leave you with more questions than answers. So I'm going to give you time to respond to the Lord. How's He asking you to be generous? Um, how, listen, we had a family meeting. At least part of the conversation was regarding our finances. We're talking about finances today. I think God's trying to get our attention. And um, so, how do you want to respond to God today? You can use the back of your bulletin. You can, to journal a little bit, you can type some thoughts into your phone. Don't be texting during this time. Don't be a millennial. You can, you can survive. Um, and then uh, Julia will, will lead us from there. So, um, God, what are, what, Father, what are you asking of us today? Right? What, what do you want us to do today? Hear, help us to hear your voice. You said, my sheep hear my voice. So. Jesus says, blessed are the poor, and he also says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt, the losers, the know-nothings, the prideful, the numbed out. He says, blessed are you, for I am broken for you. He says, blessed are you, because I have poured out myself for you. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus, who though he was rich for your sakes became poor that by his poverty he might make you rich. Today we get to feast on the richness of Jesus. And so um, how we do this is we'll break off a piece of bread. You get to dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, I'm going to have um, Zach and Jairus uh, yeah, and um, Steph help me. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ. That in the eating and drinking of them we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, poured out for others. Amen. Table is open.
May you go this week and be the bread for the hungry. May you be the good news for the poor. Um, I love you so much. I really like doing life with you. We're going to, if you want to stay, we've got plenty of food for Discover People of Peace. So uh, we'll see you in there. Peace.